Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue working through the book of Genesis. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been specifically looking at Joseph. Joseph's time in Egypt, and we started in uh, Genesis 37, looked at uh, Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers, and we've uh, been following him for the last 13 to 20 years of his life, essentially, as we've been working our way through this book. Last week, we saw that after years and even decades of, of terrible things happening to Joseph, we finally see something good happen to him. It's all a part of God's plan. That this man who had been in, uh, in slavery for a, a decade, who had been imprisoned for a number of years, finally, through God's wonderful plan, ascends to the Egyptian monarchy. He's in a position where he only answers to Pharaoh. And he spends the next seven years serving as the governor over Egypt preparing everyone in Egypt for the coming famine that they're about to experience, but none of them is aware of. He spends seven years requiring people to be frugal with their excess in order to be ready for this famine. Surely there's some sort of lesson there for our government. This idea of frugality. And this morning we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 42. We're going to see that Joseph's family follows Joseph into Canaan. 20 years have passed since Joseph himself made his way to Canaan, and, or excuse me, into Egypt uh, from Genesis 37. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to uh, chapter 42. We're going to start in verse 1 and, and just follow this story. We're going to follow this story of Joseph's brothers entering into Egypt and how God is at work in their lives as well. So hear these words starting in verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Mentioned that twenty years has passed since the last time that we saw Joseph's brothers, and, and really what we see from these verses is that nothing has, has changed all that much with who they are. These are men that are now uh, in their mid-40s. They are married, they have kids, and they're still living with their dad. Now, culturally, this wasn't as big of a, a deal as it might be today, but it is significant. Notice at the very beginning of this, uh, of this chapter, in verse 1, Joseph, or excuse me, Jacob has to uh, approach them and say, what are you doing? Why are you just sitting there waiting for this famine to take our lives? They're not doing anything proactive. It's not until dad steps in and says, go to Egypt, that they act. Joseph's brothers haven't done much maturing since the last time that we saw them. Of course, Jacob hasn't done that much maturing either. 
Last time that we saw Jacob in Genesis 37, he was playing favorites with Rachel's son, Joseph. Joseph has gone. He's been gone for 20 years now, and yet now he's playing the exact same game with Benjamin. Imagine how much this must have hurt to his, uh, to his other sons, to Benjamin's brothers, to hear, I want you to go to Egypt and buy grain, but Benjamin's not going with you in case something happens to him. In other words, what Jacob is saying, he's saying, go. It's going to be dangerous. Some of you might die, but I can live with that as long as nothing happens to Benjamin. Not exactly the words you want to hear from your, family, from your dad. Not exactly the words you want to hear from your father who is supposed to love you. In Genesis 37, we see a broken, messed up family. And here in Genesis 42, we see a family that is still broken and a family that is still messed up. And so the brothers head off. They don't know what awaits them, but they, uh, they arrive in Egypt. Verse 5 tells us how severe this famine is. I want you to picture this famine uh, thousands of years ago, and, and Egypt is the only place that has grain. So people are coming from Europe, people are coming from Asia, people are coming from the Middle East, people are coming from all over Africa, all to Egypt to buy grain. The text tells us that droves of people are moving from Canaan to Egypt as their only chance for survival. Caravans of, of migrants are fleeing their, uh, their homeland to try to survive. And honestly, this isn't a political statement, but it's a lot like the Syrian refugees that are flooding into Europe right now. And like the Syri- Syrian refugee crisis, there's a lot of suspicion around this influx of foreigners into Egypt. How can we trust these people. And that's exactly the context of Joseph's experience here with his brothers. We have a, a, let's continue reading, picking up in verse 6. It says this, Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to seek out or to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. I wonder what Joseph's brothers thought of on the journey. As they began the journey down to Egypt, 20 years had passed since they had, since they had sent their brother on that same journey. But I wonder if they thought about him. I wonder if they thought about what they had done to their brother as they walked those exact same steps You see, 20 years earlier, Joseph had been forced into Egypt against his will as a slave. And now here in Genesis 42, we see his brothers similarly traveling to Egypt against their will, trying to survive the famine that they were experiencing. They arrive in the pagan capital of the world, and they're just randomly, quote-unquote, assigned for processing and interviewing with Joseph 
for their grain. See, I think it's important for us to recognize this. Hundreds and even thousands of people were coming into Egypt from each direction each and every day. Every single one of these people needed to be processed, they needed to be checked, they needed to be interviewed before they could receive food. Without a doubt, Joseph was not the only person conducting these interviews. And it just so happens that his brothers end up before him, randomly assigned to him. And as they're before him, he recognizes them instantly. Of course, how could Joseph forget these men? His brothers were the last sights of his former life before he was drugged into Egypt. For 20 years, Joseph had thought about them. He had thought about what they had done to him. And yes, decades had passed. Yes, his brothers had put on some weight. Their hair had begun to gray. But they still wore the same shepherd garb. They still had the same beards and they smelled of livestock. It was unmistakable who his brothers were as they stood before him. But of course, the same wasn't for Joseph. A lot had changed for Joseph in the last 20 years. Joseph, like all Egyptians, was completely shaven from head to toe. Like all Egyptians, Joseph was dressed in white linens as a sign of his Egyptian authority. Like everyone else that he spoke to, Joseph used an interpreter for these foreigners because he was a member of Egyptian high society. We shouldn't be surprised that his brothers didn't recognize him, this man that they had sold into slavery and they probably thought was dead by now after 20 years of him being gone. Now notice the text tells us that uh, Joseph begins to speak roughly with his brothers after they recognize him. And we might be saying, well, why? Why is it that Joseph begins to do this? Why does he accuse them of being spies? Is this some sort of grand scheme of revenge? Does Joseph have it out for his brothers, trying to get back at them for what they had done to him? Let's think about this. Joseph is second in command in Egypt. Joseph is so powerful that he could have any single person that he wanted killed on sight. Joseph is so powerful that he could have any person thrown into prison at the very word of his command. And yet Joseph decides to play games with his brothers. So what's going on here? I don't think it's revenge. I think there are two things that Joseph is thinking of. First and foremost, notice the text tells us that Joseph remembers his dream. He remembers his dreams that he has had earlier. Decades earlier, he had received these dreams from God that his brothers would bow before him. And now as his brothers are bowing before him, he remembers these dreams. But there's something different about this dream, or excuse me, what is happening right now and the dreams that he had received. In his dreams, there weren't just 10 brothers bowing before him, but there were 11 brothers before him. There were 11 brothers bowing before him. The sun was bowing before him. The moon was bowing before him, symbolizing his parents as well. Joseph knows that his dream hasn't been fully fulfilled yet, and so he begins to act out uh, this, this grand play to get his other brother and his father and his parents to Egypt. So that's part of what Joseph is doing here. But more importantly than that, I want you to put yourself in Joseph's shoes or sandals, or whatever Egyptians wore millennia ago. This is the first time that Joseph has seen his brothers in 20 years. 
And the last time that Joseph saw them, they were in a long debate on whether they should kill him or whether they should sell him into slavery. That's the last thing that is in your mind about what your brothers are like. And of course, over the, we have no reason to, to think that Joseph hasn't forgiven them. This is a man who is extremely exemplary in all that he does. So, so we can believe that he is, he's forgiven them. But like any wise man, he doesn't trust his brothers. More than that, it's only ten of them. His little brother is missing. They had tried to kill Joseph. It's completely reasonable for Joseph to suspect that they had tried to kill Benjamin as well. After all, what kind of people are we dealing with here in his brothers? So the question that Joseph wants, wants to know here is what kind of people are his brothers? What kind of people are standing before him? They claim to be honest, which I'm sure got a great eye roll out of Joseph. But Joseph is willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. What kind of men are standing before him? Are they changed? Are they honest men? And that's the reason why Joseph puts them through these tests. In fact, these tests are eerily similar to what he experienced 20 years earlier, the last time that he saw his brother. A number of parallels here. We're going to work through these. The last time, they had nearly killed Joseph. So what has happened since then? Joseph wants to know about their character. And if Joseph reveals himself right off the bat and says, hey guys, it's me, it's Joseph, surprise, he's never going to find out their character. Without a doubt, if Joseph revealed himself to be their brother, his brothers would have said anything to get on his good side, to apologize. That's, that's human nature. Uh, years ago when I was in college, I served as a tutor for one of the religion professors there, a number of the religion classes. And, and before each exam, uh, I would hold a tutor session where I'd, I'd say, okay, this is what the, the professor is looking for on the test. And uh, the, the multiple choice questions were, were relatively easy to, to tutor through, but then you get to the essays, and essays are always more subjective. You can always write uh, and, and have a different uh, you know, twist on, on certain things. And, and what I would always do, I remember... Um, is I would always say, okay, here's the deal. This is the essay question that you might be facing, that you might be asked, and you can answer it however you want, whatever your convictions are. But let me, let me be honest with you. This professor, he loves to hear about this. He loves to hear about you talking about these kind of things and, and just emphasize this, and you're, you'll be sure to get a good grade. We think about what we want people to hear. And as I'm telling that story, I'm realizing that might not paint me in the best light. So, so uh, uh, never mind. Forget that, that story. We're going we're gonna to go with a different one. Um, yeah, just completely ignore that one. Uh, a job interview. Okay, so you're, on a, you're in a job interview. You're standing before someone. You ever found yourself trying to, to figure out when someone asks you a question in an interview, you're trying to figure out how they want you to answer it what they want to hear from you. And so you, you try to twist your answer to, to maybe not be the most honest, but you want it to be the, 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 job or the, the answer that'll get you that job. And you guys are staring at me with blank, uh, blank stares, so maybe I'm the only one who, who does that. Uh, okay, so just forget what I've, what I've just talked about here for the last couple of times. Um, anyway, uh, I, I think we can all agree it is human nature 
for us to want to get on people's good side, especially those who are in positions of power. And so Joseph doesn't reveal himself as his brother. He doesn't reveal that he is fully aware of what has happened to him, what his brothers have done, that his brothers are not honest men as they say, because he wants to test them. He wants to see their character. And what we see in the next few verses, and indeed the rest of the chapter, we see four tests of their character. And if we're honest, these are, these are tests of our character as well. We're going to read the next section here, and then we're going to jump into these, these four tests that mirror what happened 20 years earlier to Joseph in Genesis 7. So hear these words, starting in verse 12. He, being Joseph, said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while, the, while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, you, shall sure, you are surely spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. What is Joseph doing here? Well, I mentioned there are four tests that he's trying to, to, to glean from their character here. And, and I think they're good tests for us as well. These are tests that they failed in Genesis 37. He's trying to see if they've changed here in Genesis chapter 42. As we look at these, I think it's important for us to ask the same questions. What is our character? What do these tests reveal about our character? Are, do we have a godly character like Joseph, or are we like his brothers in Genesis chapter 37? So, first test that he, he puts them through is this. Joseph wants to know how they respond to inju- uh, unjust favoritism. They wanna, he wants to know how they respond to injustice. And so he asks about Benjamin, about his younger brother. See, he knows that Benjamin would have been his dad's favorite after he left. And so he wants to know how have my brothers treated Benjamin in the years that have passed. Did they treat him the same way that they treated me all those years ago. See, what they had experienced was wrong. There's no doubt about it that they had been hurt by their dad's actions, that that was not their fault for not being their father's favorite. That, that's on Jacob. That's not on the brothers. But how they respond says a great deal about their character. And I think, if we're honest, the same thing can be said about us. How we respond to injustice says a lot about our character as well. How we respond to injustice says a lot about our character as well. Injustice is a part of life. It's something that we all experience. It's something that some of us might experience more than others, but all of us experience injustice in our lives. It's not fair when a boss has it out for us and when it seems like we haven't done anything wrong. It's not fair when we have been passed over promotions and they've been given to someone who deserves them less than us. It's not fair when we have an established life in one town and yet we're forced to move because of a parent or a spouse in their job. It's not fair when we struggle with mental illness, but those around us do not. Injustice is a part of life. We cannot control it, but we can control how we respond. 
And so Joseph is trying to find out about his brother's character. How are they responding to the injustice of their father's favoritism? It's a test that's facing the brothers and it's a test facing all of us as well. How will we respond to injustice? That's the first test. Second test here, Joseph throws them in prison. They threw him in a pit 13 or 20 years earlier. Joseph spent 13 years as a slave. He spent the time as a prisoner as well. And now he's checking to see how his brothers will respond to the suffering that they experience. He throws them into prison and they can't control that. Can't control their circumstances, but they can control how they're going to respond. How are they going to respond to this suffering? I think the same thing can be said about us. How we respond to the suffering we experience speaks a lot about our character. When your life is falling down all around you, how are you going to respond? How are you going to handle the suffering that you experience? Now, the Bible leaves a lot of room for God and asking tough questions of God. It leaves a lot of room for even blaming God for the bad things that we experience as long as this is coupled with a faith in God, a trust in God. That's what we see time and time and time again in the Psalms, asking God the difficult questions, asking God why, saying, God, you are the reason why I am experiencing this hardship, and yet in the midst of all of this, there is a trust in his plan. Can the same be said for you? How do you respond to the suffering that you experience? How you respond will speak volumes about your character. That's the second test that Joseph gives to his brothers. There's two more, uh, two more tests here. Let's pick up in verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you were honest with let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody. Remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in the truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. In that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for this was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack. And to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Now what we see here is a third test. And it's focused on Simeon. On what happens to Simeon and how they respond to Simeon. You see, Joseph is very intentional about what he does to Simeon. He takes Simeon, he binds, them, he binds him right before them. He imprisons him right before his brothers in front of their eyes. Twenty years earlier... His brothers had turned their backs on a helpless brother, on Joseph. And now they stand before another helpless brother. And Joseph is waiting to see how they will respond to him. 
I think the same is true for us in, in a way. You see, how we respond to those that are helpless says a lot about our character. How we respond to those who are helpless says a lot about our character. How we respond to those who are on the fringes of society. On a Sunday morning, are we making a concerted effort to welcome the person who seems all alone or is a guest with us, or are we only concerned with our peers? Students, the same thing can be asked of you. When you are at school, are you befriending those who are sitting alone at lunch or or who don't have any friends, or are you just willing to pass them by? How we treat those who are helpless says a lot about our character. See, there's nothing wrong with spending time with your friends, with those you're most comfortable around, but it says something about us if that's all that we do. If all we do is spend time with those that are like us, that are in the same tax bracket as us, it says a lot about our character. What are we doing about the injustice around us? Are we moved to compassion at the sight of a single mother who is unable to pay her bills? Is our spirit restless when we see a foreigner struggling to to, uh, join our society and our culture? Does our heart break at the thought of children who do not have a safe place to live each night because of their parents? And more important than that, are we stirred to action? Are we stirred to action on behalf of the helpless? Our response to the helpless says a great deal about our character, just like it says a great deal about the brothers and how they respond to Simeon. There's one final test. It's found in the the rest of the chapter here. We're going to read this, and then we'll see that this test focuses on the silver here. Start in verse 26. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is it that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly with us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is is to this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, But by this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall, tra- you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob said, their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. And Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he, being Jacob, said, My son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead. And he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you were to make, you would bring my gray hairs down in sorrow to Sheol. I mentioned the final test here is the silver. The final test that that Joseph puts his brothers through is the silver. And the question is, what are his brothers going to do with it? Are they going to return to Egypt 
knowing that they are now suspected as thieves the next time that they enter into the land. You see, decades earlier, they had left home, and when they returned, they came missing one brother, but they had extra money from selling him into slavery. Now they come home, missing one brother, with extra money. And Jacob begins to think. It's not completely unreasonable to think that Jacob, knowing his, brother's char- or his son's character, thinks that they have sold Simeon into slavery to buy grain in Egypt. Joseph wants to know how his brothers are going to respond. The same question can be said of us. How we handle our money says a great deal about our character as well. It says a great deal about our character. In one sense, just like with Joseph's brothers here, what do we do with it if we have acquired it immorally? Are we acquiring it immorally? But in a larger sense, it is about how we use our money. Are we spending our money all on ourselves? Are we, be gen- are we being generous towards others? Are we, as best as we are able, meeting the needs of those that are surrounding us? That's the question facing each and every one of us. It says a lot about our character, what we do with our money. And I want to be sensitive when I ask this question because each and every one of us has a different margin when it comes to our finances. Each and every one of us has a different margin. Some of us are maxed out in our current situations. And this isn't the best test for us. But more often than not, Americans spend far more on themselves than they do on others. And what we do with our money says a lot about ourselves. It says a lot about our character. And so Joseph is trying to, to see if his brothers have changed. Have his brothers changed? Are they still the same people that they were 20 years ago? Have we changed? What is our character like? What do these tests reveal about us? And, and, and what we see at the end of this chapter is we don't know. We don't really know what has happened if his brothers have changed, if they are transformed from what they were like back in Genesis 37. But we get a little bit of a taste. We get a little bit of a glimpse of this transformed character. And it's revealed in verses, uh, in verses 21 and then 22. Let's reread those verses. Then they said to one another, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. In these two verses, we get a bit of a glimpse of their hearts from the past 20 years. Over the past 20 years, they've been eaten up by guilt over what they have done to their brother. I don't think it's too far-fetched to to think that they often go to sleep at night hearing his screams, hearing him begging and pleading for them to let him go. As they walked the long path to Egypt in their brother's footsteps, this sunk in more and more and more. And this is more than just a subjective feeling. This is more than just feeling guilty. That feeling comes from somewhere, and that feeling comes from the fact that they actually are guilty. That's what Reuben points out here in verse 22. He says that we are now being required a reckoning for his blood. This guilt is the key to the character transformation that we see here. 
Guilt is the key to the character transformation we see here, but, but taken by itself, this guilt is not enough of an answer. If they've been haunted by this guilt, by what they did to their brother for the last 20 years, why haven't they done anything about it? Why are they just now responding to this guilt? The answer is found in one of the most unlikely places. It's found on the mouth of an Egyptian prince, at least in their eyes, in verse 18. Verse 18. On, that, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live. Notice what he says next. For I fear God. For I fear God. Joseph is releasing them from prison, and he says, I fear God. This is the first time that, that God is mentioned in connection with the brothers. And the first time it is mentioned, it comes in the mouth of a so-called pagan prince. They had lived godless lives their entire lives, and now they are confronted with the reality of what God has done and how God is at work in their lives. And that's honestly the way that guilt often works. We can feel guilty for years. We can feel guilty even for decades, and it does nothing productive in our lives. It simply haunts us. But guilt can be used by God to drive us to his grace. Guilt can be used by God to drive us to his grace. And it's in those times that guilt is actually a gift of grace. In fact, if we were to, to sum up how this character transformation happens, really what this chapter is trying to get at as we talk about guilt, it's ultimately saying this, your guilt is either going to be Satan's greatest weapon or God's greatest tool. Your guilt your feelings of guiltiness, the ways you've messed up in the past, the ways you've treated others poorly, the ways you've lived immorally, the ways you've only thought about yourself and thought nothing of others, your very real guilt is either going to be Satan's greatest weapon against you or God's greatest tool for his glory in your life. Ten years ago, I was at a conference in Atlanta and I heard a sermon uh, really just on this, this topic. It was about guilt. It was about how many of us feel guilt, how many of us struggle with this idea of guilt. And this, this pastor begins his sermon to a, to a bunch of college students, and he says his desire is that out of the, the 25,000 of us that are there, he desires that, that thousands of us would give our lives in mission to the, uh, to the gospel, to bringing the good news to those that are far from God, unreached peoples. But then he said the sad reality is Many of the people in the audience, many of us have felt this calling, have felt this passion to, to do something for God, and yet we feel disqualified. We feel disqualified because of our guilt, because of what has happened in the past in our lives. And you know what? That's the way Satan works. The name Satan literally just means the great accuser, and boy, does he ever accuse. Each and every one of us can point to sins in our lives, in our past, that mortify us, that embarrass us, that fill us with shame and guilt, regardless of whether we were caught or not. 
For some of us, it is financial impropriety. It's stealing money from a family member or from our workplace. We've tried forgiving ourselves. We've tried to let it go. No matter how many years pass, we are still racked with a guilt that just consumes us. For others, it is sexual guilt. It is times where we were unfaithful to God in our future or our current spouse. In moments of weakness, we're in habitual turning away from God, whether it's with another person or whether it's all alone late at night in the darkness of our own house, whether it's an actual act or if it's in the confines of our own mind known only to ourselves. We are racked with guilt. We have confessed. We have prayed for forgiveness. We have cried. We've been forgiven by others. We've been forgiven by God, but we cannot forgive ourselves. We still feel guilty. And still for others of us, it is different. It is rash words that haunt us with a family member or a coworker or a friend. For others of us, it is a failed marriage. For others of us, it is a night when we had too much to drink. For others, it's time and time again when we put ourselves first or when we compromise with the world, where we have neglected the Bible, where we have neglected praying to God, where we don't give to the church when God calls us to and places it on our hearts. We could go on and on and on about the guilt that we experience as Christians because sin always leads to guilt. And each and every one of these things can be paralyzing can be used by Satan, the accuser, to do just that. Accuse us, paralyze us, remind us of our sin in a hope that it will cause us to do nothing, to prevent us from seeking restoration, from redemption, from reconciliation, from forgiveness. He wants us to be so racked with guilt that we think that we are unfit to serve God, that we are unfit to share with others about who God is, unfit to, to point others to the hope that we have in God. Maybe you can relate to that. Because oftentimes guilt is Satan's greatest weapon against us. But it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. Guilt can also be God's greatest tool for showing his grace in our lives. That's the beautiful, amazing thing about the story of God in our lives is that it doesn't have to end with sin and guilt. At the cross, there is a way forward. There is hope for the guilty. Beginning of Isaiah. Isaiah is commissioned, he's called by God to serve God, and he has this vision as he's standing before God. It says this, And the year that King Isaiah died, I stood before the Lord and saw him upon his throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen a king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. That's the exact 
thing that is available to us at the cross. Because it is at the cross that our guilt is taken away. It is at the cross that our sin is atoned for. It is at the cross when the moments of our greatest guilt can be the brightest lights of the unbelievable grace of God that is ours in the gospel. So the question is, will we let it be? Will we allow God to use our guilt as a beacon of light in our lives? Are you going to let your guilt be a weapon of Satan or a tool used by God? Are you going to let your guilt paralyze you, freeze you, refuse to allow you to move forward? Are you going to allow it to have the final say, or are you going to look at it as a gift of grace that leads to your repentance? And I plead with you that you would allow God to use it for good in your life, whether it's your past guilt, your present guilt that you're experiencing, or something that happens in the future, all of it, if we lay it at the cross, can be transformed into a powerful tool for the glory of God. As we close, I just want to read a, a passage, an excerpt from Micah. Micah is a, is a minor prophet, and he talks about the reality that all of us are going to experience. The reality is each and every one of us is going to fall short that each and every one of us is going to sin, that we are going to make mistakes, and we are going to be filled with guilt. But Micah reminds us that there is no condemnation because of the grace that God has for us. When we sin, when we are filled with guilt, let us set our faces like flint against the enemy in the exact same way that Micah does. This is Micah chapter 7, some of the most powerful words in the entire Bible. It says this, Rejoice not over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy shall see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. Micah in this passage is saying, you know what, I'm guilty. I have sinned. I, I, don't, I don't like what I've done, but do not gloat over me because God is with me. God is for me. Whatever I have done, God can use it for me. Whatever it is, good or bad, I will take it because I know that he will redeem me. You will not gloat over me forever. And he explains why just a few verses later. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast out all our sins into the depths of the sea. Our guilt, very real guilt, has no hold on us because of the grace of God. Because of what God has done for us. For Joseph's brothers, they are able to find forgiveness because of what God has done for them. Because of the mercy of God. There is no accusation that will stand against them or will stand against us because of the cross. Do not let Satan use your guilt 
as a weapon. Instead, allow it to be a gift of grace, a gift that leads you to repentance, a gift that leads to character transformation, and let it be a beacon of light, a light of God's grace that is available to all. Let's pray. We thank you for the ways that you use our guilt, the times that we screw up, the ways that we are far from you, where we sin against you, that you can use those things for good. You can use those things to to bring us nearer to you, to transform us, to change us, to mold us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to examine our hearts, examine our lives, even as we prayed this morning, as we looked from, uh, from Psalm 139, that you would search our hearts, that you would know us, O oh God. Be gracious to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.